And we're back. Uh, Tonight we've got a special episode um, of the Riverside Community Church Podcast, the stream at Riverside. Uh, And we've got some special guests with us, Felicia and Wayne Penn. Yeah, I'm excited to have you guys. Um, this is a joint podcast between our pad- podcast and your podcast. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, so um, again, I'm Felicia and I'm here sitting beside my lovely blue Wayne. Lovely. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, we're definitely excited to just to be here today and have this conversation. But um, a little bit about our podcast is called Marriage at Kolkata. And we uh, really just like to talk about some of the hard um, issues that marriages experience. Um, some of those conversations that people typically really don't like to have. Yes. Um, because some people like to, you know, we want to put on that facade of, oh, my marriage is really, really perfect. Yeah. Um, but Wayne and I, we've been married now what 12 years honey yeah i have to look at him and ask him sometimes but uh <laughs> you're welcome yeah we've been married 12 years and you know a lot of people would always say oh you really haven't learned anything until you've been married about 20 or 30 years and we found out no that is definitely is not, not true but we definitely yeah. wanted to share with you know in some of our experiences that we've had um some of the hard times that we have even the hard times that we we still have you know in our marriage we just like to throw some of those topics out there we don't claim to be experts or anything like that but we really just like to to have the conversation i think um one of my favorite episodes um on our podcast is the melting pot so um for those of you that are listening right now please feel free to um check out that podcast i'm sure well, thank give you the information on it honey uh, i can so um there are a few ways that you can check it out. It's uh, we have a, a site dedicated specifically to it. It's uh, www.marriageatgolgotha.com. That's M A A. It's M A R R I A G E A T G O L G O T H A dot com. Or we're on Facebook also, so um, you can follow us there, like our page, and we're also on Instagram. Our handle mm. is uh, M A T G. So it's short for Marriage at Golgotha underscore podcast. That's M-A-T-G underscore podcast. So we would definitely love for y'all yes. to check it out if y'all would like and Thank give you. us your please, feedback. Please check us out. Great. <laughs> you, and you notice Wayne had to um, recite all of that because I can never remember all that information. <laughs> I always pretty much give that over to him. Yeah, I'm a tech guy. So. Yes. Yeah. And you're very good at that, I must say. Thank you, babe. I appreciate <laughs> yes. it. Yeah. So um, again, uh, we're excited just to you know have this conversation to be surrounded by this table with such awesome brothers yes mm. and i must say guys they are looking good today my brother jay will got him a fresh haircut mm-hmm. yeah i am good. super proud of him like i'm super proud super proud this yeah. is yes. what we're doing this yes. is, what this we're is doing. exactly, this is what exactly we're doing. how our conversation because are. we love each other here at riverside right <laughs> since she's throwing the ball to me i'm jay will pastor of city of refuge church and i get to deal with these nut balls all the time but Yes. All the yes, time. Yes. All the time. So um, we just kind of want to go around the room and have everybody kind of introduce themselves. And again, we're going to have kind of a hard conversation um, to have um, today. And it's an important conversation, I think, that the church really needs to have. And yeah. what I really love about this is that 
there are some brave souls that are surrounded around this table yeah. I'm here that are willing to have this conversation. And as I was just really going through um, this week and I've really tried to kind of tune myself out a little bit with everything that's been going on just to give my myself a little bit of uh, peace, <laughs> um, so to speak, because looking at everything that's been going on in the news and just the reality of what's really going on in the black community, um, the racial injustice, things that have been going on, it's kind of hard to see every single day but the reality is that it is happening which is why we're having this conversation mm -hmm. but um one of the things that i was thinking about i was i was standing at my desk today and i was like god like really when is this gonna be over you know it was really just heart-wrenching just to see a lot of the things that are going on um and not everyone can be uh as vocal about it i think that's also important for us to remember as well um, some people can be a little bit vocal about it. Some people are willing to. They have um, the confidence to be more vocal about it than others. And that's mm -hmm. important that we recognize that as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I just want to ask you guys, as you go around the table and kind of introduce yourselves, like what's been that one question while all of this has been going on that you've asked God? Have you asked God the why question? God, why is this happening? Or the when? God, when is this going to be over? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Passing it to the left. We're going to shoot it to Jay. Um, I've already introduced myself, Jay Will, but um, one of the big questions I've had is just what What do we do in the midst of this? Um, why and when will it end? I'm not as interested in what can I do in the midst of it. Um, I'm one of those people that I don't, emotions, I don't process. I'm more of the action-oriented action guy. So yeah, you're not touchy-feely at all. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah no. <laughs> it, it comes out every now and then. Right, but, right, uh, right. It's more of what can we do at this moment? What can the church do at this moment? Yeah, awesome. Mm. Gabe. Pastor Gabe. Listen, just Gabe, thank you and, so and much. And he's for... a drummer, you guys. He's really, <laughs> really good. I got nothing. I'm just so thankful to be here. Thank you all so much for um, for letting me be here. It's just really something I was looking forward to since James texted me a couple days ago about this. Um, and I... I've just been grieved, y'all. Yeah. yeah. Grieved. Um, can, can any of us process watching a man die mm. on tape? Right. When, when like a phone call would have saved him, like that, mm. has just blown me away this week. Just grief over the death of an image bearer of God. Yeah. Not grief that like when is it going to get back to normal? And with you, Jay, will I echo like I don't know. And I don't really care at this point. I just want to know what to do. Yeah. yeah. So I'm here to sit and listen and learn. Thank you all for, for having me. Yeah, appreciate you. And I'm Josh Parks, one of the elders of Riverside um, and a regular on the podcast. Um, I think the past week has been kind of a whirlwind of emotion for me too, um, of grief and sadness and anger. Um, and then I, I feel like the last few days conversations have really started kicking off. Mm. Um, and I've really, I've had some great conversations with people, um, which have kicked off a whole new set of emotions for me. Um, we'll probably talk about that a little bit in the podcast. Um, as I find myself agreeing with some people and, and, um, encouraged by some of the conversations that are happening, even in my parents' generation, you know, I'm 37, my parents are kind of in that retirement age and. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised at some of the things that are happening there and then in some, in some ways disappointed by my peers mm. um, and encouraged there too. But it's just a mixed bag right now of, of what I'm experiencing and what I've 
um, experienced the last week. But I'm really excited about this conversation um, tonight. I'm James Walden, and I'm a pastor here at Riverside Community Church. And a real quick word on Pastor Gabe, just Gabe. He's a pastor at First Prez, and uh, um, I just want to say a quick word about my brother. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful that you're here, Gabe. Uh, Gabe is a rare combination of a passionate mind that loves to learn, loves to think deeply about God's Word and how that applies, and a passionate heart loves yeah. people. He's a pastor at heart. He's not just a, a brain. He's a, he's a heart. And so I'm just grateful for my brother. I'm grateful to have that, this kind of friend uh, co-ministering in the city. So, and I'm grateful for um, just to be here myself and to be at this table. As you said, Fee, I'm, yeah. I feel honored to be here and to be sitting with you guys mm-hmm. talking about this. I do think I asked the why question. I mean, when I see that kind of senseless evil, mm-hmm. that sense, senseless violence, I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Why does this, why is that happening? Um, so I think I've been wrestling a lot with um, uh, the question of police brutality, mm-hmm. the question of mm-hmm. structural racism, uh, what, how much of it is, 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 is historically grounded, how much of it is people, has people overstated it, have people understated it? I think I've been just sort of grappling with, because if, if I can't understand the why, I have a hard time knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm grappling with the why question. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Can I say real quick just uh, how thankful I am for Riverside? And like, I think it was like I met you probably two weeks after I moved here, three weeks after I moved here. Hmm. And this church has been phenomenal. Uh, to me and in encouraging me in my ministry here and in my life. So thank you to Riverside and to you, James and Jay Will, who I've got to know probably the best around this table here, but thank you all so much for that. I, I would echo that, Gabe. Um, Riverside's definitely been a blessing to, to Fee and I. Um, it's really been a source of a lot of healing, you know, with a lot of stuff that we've dealt it with has. ourselves. So yeah. um, I'm Wayne. Uh, I think my title right now that's most relevant is that I'm Felicia's husband. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, as far as what question I've been wrestling with, I echo every one of your questions that you all have presented. I think another question that I've asked too, particularly Gabe, what you said, you know, with, with the video is what will it take for really everyone to take the issue seriously? Because, like, mm. I've really been wrestling with how raw the videos have been, but also with the fact that were it not for some of the videos, some of the convictions and arrests would probably wouldn't have taken place. So mm. that reality has really kind of, you know, been something that I've had to kind of process. And me, my personality, I am a processor. So, James, similar to you, as far as the what to do, I really have to kind of process and think through all of these different you know, possibilities and uh, understanding of like different layers of the issue and stuff like that. So as far as like making a decision on what to do, I don't really act all that fast, which irks my wife a little bit sometimes. But but um, yeah, it, it's just been that just, you know, what is it really going to take for there to be more widespread awareness, like real awareness, not just surface, but you know, real awareness, real empathy, and real understanding of, you know, exactly what we're dealing with here, so. Yeah, and it's important for us to recognize also, you know, we're all asking those 
why questions or God, you know, what, what should we do? And it's important to realize that God does hear us. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he knows that, you know, um, those things are on our heart, you know, that we see the, the videos and we see the police brutality, we see the racial injustice and God is still God in, in spite of it. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people to really grasp, especially in the Christian community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we have this false sense of who God is, that everything is just supposed to be, you know, beautiful, wonderful, because we, we're serving God. But I like what, um, what you said, Gabe. It's, you asked the question, God, just what do I do? And so um, that really brings us into what we want to talk about right now. Um, what do we do? But before we do what we're, we're thinking that we need to do. I think it's important to know why we need to do it, and it's important for us to look back. So we kind of want to talk about uh, systemic racism, um, talk about maybe some of the you know historical data with racism and things like that. So why don't we, what do you guys think, um, what comes to mind when you think about systemic racism? Yeah, this one I would love to um, hear Gabe, but when I think about it, no, because I mean, he has the history. He has a real good look, grasp on history. When I think of systemic racism, um, I think about the fact that, you know, every 4th of July, we shoot fireworks in our community, right? Yeah. You know, every, or we are buying fireworks from uh, the stand, but a lot of times we don't think about our neighbor who might have PTSD who came back from war. Mm. So, systemic racism in America is think about. 200 plus years of trauma being passed down, being passed down, being passed down, broken bodies being displayed in front of uh, African Americans over and over and over again. Yep. And magnify that to now we're in a day and age where we can see what's going on in Minnesota from Columbia. Yeah. On our phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same, it's the same mm-hmm. type of PTSD in a sense, almost a hand down of PTSD, but then factor in their own, ex- uh, our own experience. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so that's the things I think about when I think of historical systemic racism is, is trauma that's been handed over through the past centuries. Yeah, mm. I, w- I would agree, Jay. Um, for me also, a part of it is not only the, the historicity of the trauma, but the fact that a lot of times, you know, those that have voiced the fact that this trauma is here, mm. a lot of times they're not really believed as much as they should be, you know, and We'll probably get into this a little later, but I just think that's really a, an unfortunate consequence of how deeply rooted the systemic racism is. Because on top of the fact that, you know, the system you know, was set up to literally keep one group of people oppressed for so long, part of how that oppression was kept up for so long is the fact that you not only oppressed them, but then you basically made them have to deal with the fact that Y'all are not getting out of this unless we say so. And so, you know, when we actually voice, you know, what we're dealing with and the trauma and that kind of stuff, and we're told, well, in order to better the situation, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. So it's like, um, and I, I, I think of this on so many lines, like personally, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, and it's a bit comical, but at the same time, I, it, it struck me. So, I mean, those of you, we don't have video. I have locks. <laughs> so obviously during the pandemic, they got a little rough. You know, they didn't look the they best. They did get rough. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely got rough, you guys. All right, all right, babe. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, needless to say, you know, my, my, my locks weren't looking the best. And it crossed my mind, honestly, 
you know, what if I go out the house dressed the wrong way and I'm told that I fit a description? And just the fact that I had that thought, I really had to, to really think about it and be like, okay, is that something that just came out of, you know, thin air? Or is that something that, you know, I've implicitly felt due to a trauma that's been passed down? And it, it, it really hit me that, you know, even a simple thought like that can really point to just the reality of systemic racism because it's not always you overtly experiencing somebody calling you names or being told that you can't go in this restaurant or that restaurant. You know, we, we no longer have the separate bathrooms, thankfully. But the fact that, you know, that thought and that implicit mindset is still there, it points to the reality of it. So um, to me, that when I think of systemic racism, I, th I think of not just the obvious, but like even the subconscious. I, 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 I would like to say before we turn it over, um, I want to bring it home to how close this is. Yeah. So this past week, the daughter of a Civil War veteran died this past week. Yeah, yeah. So literally, this is, you know, she's 90-something years old. Mm -hmm. yeah. Her dad was a part of the Confederacy fighting in the Civil War. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this isn't like this is so past removed that, you know, <laughs> right. we don't have to talk about it no more. No, we just literally we just, lost yeah. the granddaughter, I mean the daughter of one of the Civil War Confeder Confederate soldiers. Mm -hmm. This isn't an issue we could just so easily pass by. Yeah. yeah. But when you meet people who are have been either affected by slavery or they were a part of the ones fighting to keep slavery in place, yeah, we really need to real. uh, address this because it's not that past. It's not that far in the past. Yeah, yeah um, sometimes, you know, we, we look at history and we, we think about even slavery and we say, okay, well, that was so far, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. long ago. And, um, you know, Gabe, I really want you to chime in on this, um, you know, thinking about racism in American history. Um, but I think we really need to have the hard conversation of racism in the church. Yeah. yeah. And um, I also want... You, if you guys, I know we have two pastors here to maybe share of the first time um, while you were maybe pastoring that you saw racism maybe within your own church. Well, I, you know, it's no secret to anybody who knows the history of this city or the history of the church in the South that First Presbyterian Church Columbia uh, was pastored by men who were racists. Mm. Just call it what it is. Uh, brilliant men, uh, men who had wives and kids. And, and this is the thing of this whole thing. I was thinking about doing sermon prep on the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees had kids that they loved, and they were horribly mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. when I think about guys who had pastored the church that I'm now a pastor at, and I've read their writings, and I know these guys were incredibly learned, the question that comes up to me again and again is, how did they miss it? Mm -hmm. And what I think is important about what's happening here at this table and in maybe some small way is that we're sitting around trying to help each other find blind spots. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I've got them. Yeah. And it's just what you, you said, Wayne. It's like you don't have to say black and white restrooms. Right. To, to think about the fact, I was just thinking about your daughters um, and your kids, Jay Will. And I was... Tucking my daughter in last night. Yeah. And uh, I like to give her big hugs. Mm hmm And she giggled and said, I can't breathe. Wow. Because I was hugging her heart. 
and it struck me. She can giggle and say that. Maybe my brothers and sisters who are black will have children children who will say that with a, a knee on their neck. Yeah. Wow. And I don't ever have to worry about that with my kids. And that's shocking. Yeah. That's real. And that came from, uh, let's just put this out there too, because we're Christians. <clears throat> Why did they miss it? Because as learned as they were, and let's just, okay, so James Henley Thornwell, who defended the institution of slavery. He was a pastor at First Pres for 1839 to 1840, and then in the 1850s, died in 1860. This is a man who had memorized the King James Bible before he was a Christian by the time he was 14. He'd memorized the entirety of the works of Aristotle and most of the Greek New Testament. This guy was off the charts. Wow. Okay, then you think about the fact that he could preach sermons with that kind of knowledge and miss passages like, anyone who steals a man, he shall be put to death. <laughs> yeah. And that's happening, you know, a hundred miles down the road in Charleston while he's pastoring, yeah. while he's visiting that city. And what that does for me, I think, historically looking at all this, is horrifying because of what happened, but also the reality of, of sitting here going, I, I've got huge blind spots. Right. I've got huge right. blind spots. And one that came home to me is what I just shared, that you talked about having locks, Wayne, and I never thought about my hair. I mean, I had this kind of shaggy 12-year-old deal going on. <laughs> but when I walked out, I never went, man, is somebody going to peg me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than kind of like, you know, some fratastic college student? No, you know? And, and it's 2020, and that's shocking that we're still saying this. Yeah, yeah, that's real. Yeah, um, I, 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 I can't remember who it was, but I saw a thread today on Twitter about this. We said, you know, it's ironic that in the Reformed world, where we are so aware of the doctrine of depravity, and we talk about the deep depravity of sin that's in men and women, and that the depravity is so bad that I don't even see it. That in many ways, I need others. I need the mirror of God's word. I need the mirror of other image bearers to reflect back my sin because I don't see the glop of cream cheese on the side of my mouth. I don't see it. Yeah. Except this, this particular image was saying, apparently when it comes to the sin of racism, we already know whether we're racist or not. And <laughs> he's like, that's the one area that's apparently the exception to the rule. But B.B. Um, Warfield said this, um, reflecting back. And he said, I'm a Southerner in birth, training, and affiliation. But reflecting back on the Southern Christian legacy and it's sad, not, it wasn't even overt racism. It, I mean, covert, it was overt, yeah. clear. Yeah. You read Robert Dabney, you read yep. Thornwell. I mean, it's just, it makes our jaws drop to read what these men, these learned men who love Jesus said. But it was interesting to hear B.B. Warfield say that, you know, when he reflected back on that, said these were Christian men under the pressure of their race antipathy, which is an old way of saying under their racism, <laughs> desert the fundamental law of the church of the living God, that in Christ Jesus, there can be no Greek or Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondsman, or free. And so... He's, he, he was like, look, what, what happened with my, my uh, this legacy of Southern Reformed Christianity? They were, the pressure of racism 
controlled how they read their Bibles. Yeah. And that's a reality that we all have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, Gabe, there's what other sins do I not see about myself? That's one of the most disturbing things about this. Um, I think for me, an aha moment or like what brought it home was when, when Riverside came into this church. This church was built in 1950, I believe the cornerstone says out there. So segregation was still the norm. And I remember we were, if you guys see that bathroom upstairs on the balcony, mm-hmm. we were kind of, what's going on with this bathroom? It's the weirdest bathroom. It's this tiny corner. It's almost useless. I don't know how, I could, I can barely fit in that bathroom, you know? <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Like, was this a, like for nursing moms? Like, what was this little? And someone just said, well, I think maybe it was, this was like the black bathroom and the, the, the black wow. folks worship in the balcony. And it just like, holy cow. Like, I don't know if that's true because yeah. <laughs> I haven't, yeah. I haven't yeah. been able to verify that. But I think that was very sobering to see that, that artifact of just segregation. And as I'm learning, it isn't just history in the past. That segregation, that Jim Crow law yeah. continues in new incarnations mm-hmm. in, in covert ways that are no less overtly sinful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I think about, you know, um, I've read and, and heard a lot about how there are a lot of racist roots, even in um, some parts, some portions of, you know, the evangelical movement. Um, it's it's not it's interesting how it started, because, you know, from what I read and researched, a lot of it was it was like this kind of this split from those that were kind of really fundamentalist who were overly concerned about, you know, adhering to, you know, sound doctrine. But, you know, they still wanted to hold on to the idea that, you know, whites and blacks couldn't be worshipped together, couldn't eat together, couldn't do this. And so there, there were a lot of different camps. But in particular, what I've heard is that, you know, when Billy Graham came along, he really challenged that notion. Like, I, I, I remember reading about a crusade that he did where there was a, a rope that was roping mm. off, you know, whites from blacks. And he said, I'm not going to preach until this rope is removed. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of a lot of fundamentalists, they, they didn't like that, um, unfortunately. And, um, you know, one of the things that that really struck me was that, you know, the idea of segregation and racism. As much as as much as abortion is kind of lauded as the, you know, end all be all of, of you know, what we need to yeah. stand for and that kind of stuff. In reality, uh, truthfully, a lot of it a lot of the separation that we see and a lot of the hostility was due to the fact that there were just some white church institutions that just did not want to segregate. You know, I think of Bob Jones University. Um, You know, the reason why they uh, really kind of had a part in forming the moral majority didn't really have to do with abortion. It had to do with the fact that the government was threatening to tax them or sue them because they refused to segregate. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they said, well, hey, you know, we haven't been politically involved that much lately, but since we want to kind of hold on to segregation, let's now start to get politically involved and let's center on the issue of abortion as kind of our quote unquote calling card. And so, I mean, that's kind of what you see. And um, it's just interesting that we'll find one issue to maybe dig all of our claws into. And it does make us blind to a lot of other issues. You know, I myself have really had to be mindful of the fact that as much as I just despise racism, I also have to be mindful that I not grow bitter myself. 
and that I also extend grace and I also extend forgiveness and extend love to some of my white brothers and sisters, even if they come off as just being blatantly racist and just not willing to understand and not willing to empathize, I still have to be mindful of the fact that Jesus requires me to be gracious. And I, I can't base that on whether they're gracious or not. And it, it's it's difficult, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, and so we'll definitely get a little bit more in, into that. But you mentioned something about um, the roots. And a lot of the racial trauma that people experience, a lot of their experiences comes from the roots of the systemic racism. Yeah. yeah. So we want to kind of talk about racial trauma. Um, and when you think about trauma, there's, of course, different types of, of trauma. There's physical, there's emotional um, trauma. You know, children experience trauma through physical abuse. But when we're thinking about um, racial trauma, it goes deeper into the incidents of racism. Yeah. Um, so think about maybe the microaggression, um, the historical trauma such as slavery, the Holocaust and things like that. And what do you guys see it um, is the impact of that racial trauma? What, is, what are some of the experiences that, that you maybe had or seen? Mm. I think for me, um, I was telling somebody earlier, I said uh, the first time I had the first interaction with a police officer, I remember I was seven years old and I saw my brother getting arrested. Um, this is the very first, you know, picture of... Uh, of, of the police I have in my head, seven years old, Saturday morning, it's 9.45. I even remember the time, day, wow. how it happened. Um, and the reason it traumatized me so much is for two reasons. Um, one, the reason my brother was getting arrested is because I got jumped on by an 18-year-old. And he went and fought the person and slammed him through a glass table. Oh, wow. So now the seven-year-old is getting, is, you know, it's the fault of the seven-year-old that his brother is being arrested. Secondly, I remember because my brother was sleeping on his stomach and the police jumped on his back mm. and put their knee in his back. So sleep, uh, my, my brother, who's the good guy in, this, in, my, in my image, yeah. of my, and again, I know now as an adult, I understand my brother didn't do everything right. Sure. But good guy being jumped on by police officers um, and being arrested while he sleep for protecting his brother. I don't remember the color of the other police. I just remember the police in the police uh, uniform. Mm -hmm. Next traumatic experience I had with the police is at 22. Um, I'm going to get, we, we just moved out of a house. This is during the year. Me and my wife were homeless for about a year. And um, we were living with our sister, uh, my sister-in-law. Um, my sister-in-law got evicted from the house. It was a trashed house anyway. But um, somebody broke in during the week and must have stole a refrigerator or something. Mm. So the landlord and the police officers on the front porch. I see them. I talk to them. Hey, I'm just going in at my my computer my computer desk and I had a custom built computer. It's in here. I'm just coming to pick it up. Well, how do we know you're not trying to steal? I'm talking to both of y'all. Right. I could tell. I could show you where it is. I could show you what it is. You can walk with me. Um, police officer gets my ID. Leaves. A few minutes later, he comes back um, because my ID had my mother's address on it. And when he went around there to talk to my auntie, she said he doesn't live here. But again, I'm getting my um, mail at this house, at my mother's house, but I didn't live there. So the police comes back. You think I'm playing with you. He's yelling at me. He has his hand on his gun. 
And I'm like, whoa, wait a second, officer. Yeah. I'm talking to him calmly. Yeah. Uh, and he's yelling at me. Now, this was a black officer. Mm. So I'm, uh, this is why wow. I'm, I'm bringing up the yeah. fact that the, right. the color of the officers and the, and the fact that I don't, some of the officers, I don't remember the colors. Mm-hmm. But here's two incidents where I'm either seeing my brother get jumped on or I see a cop trying to provoke me to yeah. do something. Yeah. And he sees he can't provoke me. I'm, sir, why are you acting this way? What is going on? Why do you have your hand on your gun, sir? Can we talk about this? Right. What's happening? Right. The officer leaves, doesn't give me a ticket or anything. So it's not like he, he, he obviously he just wanted to shake it up enough to see if I would do something. Mm-hmm. But why is this the thing you do to a black kid in the neighborhood? And in some incidents that we see publicly, white kid who is actually hostile towards a cop. Mm-hmm. And they are, sir, ma'am, being calm with this person. Don't tase me, bro. Yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Classic. So, so, so you know, um, this is the University of Florida reference. Yeah, here's the thing. I don't, I'm not going to say there are racist people. I will. We could wholeheartedly talk around the table. Yeah, but yeah, there is also something bigger than these racist people in play. And there is a racist system. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, tells that person's dangerous mm-hmm. because they're brown skin or they're yeah. darker. Yeah. Or, you know, a person of color. That person's dangerous. But the white guy, he's not that dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a dumb kid. We yeah. can point to other references, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And this is where I think um, some white people struggle with understanding where you're, where where black their black friends are coming from in this because they go, "I'm scared of cops too." You know, I'm like, or I've had bad experiences with cops. I've experienced bad power tripping, um, you know, authoritarian police officers who tried to provoke me or whatever too. Um, and so I had a conversation with a friend this week, and I just asked him, um, a, a black friend, "How can I pray for you right now?" And and he said, and he and he started talking about this dynamic of just driving around fearful that he's going to get pulled over, which is not how I live my life <laughs> as a white man. Um, but when I do get pulled over, um, I don't have to think about like where are my hands right now. Yeah. How can I send the message yeah. to this yeah. police officer that I'm not a threat? I've never had that yeah. go through my head. My thought is, how am I going to get out of this ticket? Right. You know? Or how am I going to, you know, how am I going to, you know, suck up this police officer <laughs> so he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't write me a big ticket or he drops the points out? Whatever. But I've never thought, yeah. man, how can I make sure that this police officer feels safe around me? Yeah. Because I've never, I've never thought that a police officer would feel anything other than safe around me. Mm-hmm. And right. so there, I, there is a different experience growing up, you, I think, you, white, and the way that we experience even the police, even if we don't like the police or we've had bad experiences with them, there's still a difference. difference. You said something just interesting. You've never had to disarm your skin. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. that's what happens a lot of time with yep. black guys that interact with the police or black How people that interact. They have to disarm their flesh, their skin first before, you know, it, they have to dehumanize themselves and become overtly positive to make sure the cop feels mm. safe around them. Yeah, What's I, I read it the other day, the ALIVE acronym that black parents will often teach their kids like about when you run on a police officer. Uh, mm-hmm. yes. I, I can't I remember what I can't remember what it is now, but it's I, I don't know like, the acronym, but it was like where's your hands? That's yes. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Where's your hands? Yeah. Don't make any sudden movements. Uh, yeah. right. yes sir, no sir. No, sir. Uh, watch your you tone. Know, watch your tone, put your hands mm-hmm. on the steering wheel, make sure they see a visible image. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known people as far as they put their hands out the window as soon as the cop pulls up mm-hmm. to make sure you see my hands. Yep. Um, yeah. And the cops have to tell you, you can put your hands back in the window. Oh, I'm just want to make sure you see my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's sad to say. Well, a, 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 a black man was shot in Colombia oh, for reaching for his wallet. Yes, yeah, he was. Yeah. For, uh, for, uh, 
under orders to reach for his wallet. <laughs> the police officer told him to do it and then shot him for doing yeah, it and, yeah. and was fortunately held accountable for that. Yeah. But yeah. that doesn't always happen, But which we can get into. But, I mean, it's it's not like it's a crazy thing that happens in just, you know, in crazy circumstances. And, and, it's happened in our city. And here's exactly. the thing. Um, I mean, I try to be as neutral and level-minded as possible because I was one of the people that asked the question, why would that cop act that way? Well, found out previously, two, two or three weeks earlier, he had been in a shootout. So now, here's a, post, a person who's dealing with some type of PTSD. Sure. Mm. Looking at a person he already feels in danger in, in, in front of, but, you know, we don't know why. I won't, again, I won't quickly say he was a racist. Sure. I would just say uh, there's a system that teaches you be careful about who you're around. Yeah, mm. I think I think it's referred to as implicit bias. Implicit bias. Yeah. That's yeah. a nice yeah. way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and he says, reach for your wallet. Guy turns around and goes in the glove box. Open fire. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to talk about two, two issues, I think, at the same time. The root cause of why the police respond the way they do or why people who have a power respond this way. Because um, a lot of times it's out of self-preservation of their own power. Um, mm. But also the traumas of the people who've been affected by the police. Um, I, I went to, uh, and y'all can shut me up if I'm talking too much, no, but I went did. to um, an event at uh, a church locally, and they were having a sit-down with the police department, and mm. it was a congregation full of black people. Um, and the cop said, yes, I understand. There's 5% of cops that might have, a, you know, they, there are some bad guys here. We understand we're trying to weed them out as best as we can. Um, but I will say that's only like 5% of the 95. And the, the um, pastor turned around. He said, hey, um, how many of you feel like you've been racially, uh, uh, about, I mean, have had any kind of racial tension between you and the police? And almost 99% of the people in the raised their hand. And he mm. said, if 5% of the people are affecting 99% of the people in this room, there is a bigger issue we need to discuss. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you see that a lot. A lot of times that happens. People will say, oh, that's only a small percentage of bad cops. There's only a small percentage of people that have been, you know, racially profiled or even shot by the police. But it's important to remember that you could have been or someone that you know could be a part of that, you know, that 5%. Yeah. And um, that goes into how, you know, sometimes um, people try to avoid the, the conversation that we're having. They try to deflect yeah. um, from those real issues. And we want to really talk about that. Mm-hmm. But going back to something um, that James said in reference to, you know, parents and how we try to prepare our kids to be able to respond when the police does stop. I remember an incident that I had um, with one of my daughters. I don't, we don't have any sons. We have two girls. And um, this is probably around the time, I think, that um, Trayvon Martin was killed. And my, both of my daughters, they love they to wear hoodies. That's, I think, one of the big things that kids yeah. like to do. They, they love to wear hoodies. And I remember we were going into a store, and Cammy, my youngest daughter, she had on a hood, and she... But she put the she had on a hoodie and she put the hood on her head and I said, "Hey, take that off. Don't wear that, you know, inside of the store." And she looked at me innocently, like, "Mom, why not?" But in my mind, I was thinking about hmm. Trayvon Martin, yeah. and, you know, um, and what and and what happened to him. And I was like, you know, you could be profiled. Like she she was, you know, she's just a little kid. She's only ten years old now. So you know, then she was even younger. But that thought was constantly going through my mind and you know sometimes like 
um, Josh said, you know, he never thought about, hey, you know, the cops are going to profile me or things like that. We don't realize some of the privileges that we have. Um, and I think as parents, sometimes we, we end up um, inflicting that, I guess that, uh, I don't know if I want to call it guilt, but that realization that, you know, my child could possibly be yeah. profiled or, yeah. you know, well, I mean, it, something could happen. I don't think I'd call it guilt. I would just call it more a, it's almost a necessary, at least we feel in that moment that it's a necessary precaution. Yeah. Like, we, we really don't know, like, honestly. And that, that's the thing about the trauma. Like, it's, it almost creates, creates a sense of paranoia, even though I don't think it should be labeled that. But, like, it creates this, this almost this, um, this innate sense of distrust yes. as it relates to, like, you know, police and some government officials and stuff. And even though the distrust may be unwarranted, it may not be something that, you know, we should have, because of the trauma that you know we're wearing on our heads, it's like, okay, I understand that not all police are bad, and I, I, I hope that's not coming across in this conversation. Like, you know, we 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 definitely the Bible commands us to pray for those you know who serve in, in that capacity, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's hard to really in that moment, you know, particularly like you know when you have had an experience with the police. Like, you know, I'll I'll share one of my own. I remember I was maybe eighteen or nineteen. Um, just got in my first car, uh, like a kind of like bronze Chevy Cavalier. You remember that car, honey? Yes, I do. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't get I the won't wrong, say how. Yeah, but don't get the wrong idea, y'all. Keep going. But um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I remember I remember pulling into a Publix. Um, got out my car. Was getting ready to walk into the store. All of a sudden, I kind of heard a, a voice, you know, from behind me. And uh, it was a police officer. He was basically saying, you know, hey, come here for a second. And he was, he was really aggressive, actually. Come here for a second. Um, he happened to be white. Now, I'm not going to implicitly say, you know, just off the bat say that he was racist or whatever. But in that moment, I was, I was petrified. Number one, because I didn't know why he was calling me over. And number two, like, look, I, I've, I've seen this movie before. I, I've mm-hmm. seen what happens. Like... And this was this was pre, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin and some of the, you know, videoed killings that we were, you know, used to seeing. Mm. But, you know, I just remember that moment, like, okay, what what is going on? And so I I tried to disarm myself, tried to be respectful, tried to, and come to find out, uh, my car matched the description of a car, I guess, that someone had been kidnapped in. Mm. And so I, in that moment, I was just trying to, you know, basically get out of Dodge and just, you know answer whatever questions he asked, you know, whatever. And, and that was that. Thankfully, you know, it wound up not being a situation. But, you know, when I got in the store and really thought about it, I was like, okay, if I had just kidnapped somebody, why would I be pulling into a Publix? <laughs> Going to get groceries. <laughs> Going to get groceries. <laughs> and I, it, it, just, it just struck me. And again, I'm not, not trying to throw aspersions to, you know, the gentleman. It's, it's just... In that moment, I wasn't thinking, hey, you know what? Before I get fearful, let me keep in mind that not all police are bad. Right. Even though that is a truth, and it, it's definitely something that, you know, we need to kind of rehearse in our heads. But in that moment, it, it's not registering. In that moment, the trauma of <laughs> generations and experiences that I've heard about 
experiences that, you know, my mom and my dad have told me about, my grandparents have told me about, um, other people that I know have told me about. In that moment, those things are coming back to sure. mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what trauma does, in effect. It, it, it really brings to mind kind of what you experience, you know, directly and vicariously in that moment. It, it, and it's, even though you want to think logically in that moment, it, it just doesn't happen all the time. Can, um, yeah, on that note, um, uh, I think it's helpful. It's one, it's extremely helpful to hear stories like this. This is really helpful. And to kind of zoom out and hear the collective stories. And there was an interview recently in light of all this with a professor of criminology named Daniel, I think it's Nagin, N-A-G-I-N. But they asked him uh, in the interview, based on your research, he's a criminologist, a professor of criminology. You know, what do you think about the Black Lives Matter movement? And is it reflective of historic realities, systemic problems? And this is what he said. I thought this was interesting. He said, the Black Lives Matter movement has to be understood in the context of the historical legacy of the ill treatment of blacks by the police mm-hmm. in the criminal justice system and American political and social institutions more generally. That legacy is a fact. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the movement, I think, is a reflection of and reaction to that legacy. And I think a lot, especially speaking for myself, I was very ignorant of this legacy. Yeah. And to me, it was kind of like a blank slate, like whether you're white or black, you're the blank slate now, we're post-MLK. I mean, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. And so the idea of a systemic historic racism and a legacy that plays out, like you said, even replaying out trauma. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, like, in one of the resources I encourage folks to, to look at and to watch in a movie is, the, is 13th. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he talks about what you were talking about, Jay Will. I think in that, someone in that, the interview in that uh, movie talks about the criminalization of the black body. Yeah. yeah, And I think when you see the evidence and you start to hear the stories, it's sort of difficult to deny it. You know, yeah. there is this historical precedent and and really a conspiracy. How much of that, uh, Gabe, Gabe, we were talking uh, before the podcast, how much of that is men scheming and how much of that is a spiritual satanic right. Right. power at play? It's hard to deny. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was thinking about was I, I taught not too long ago in our Sunday school class about um, Jesus's resurrection body. And I, I, I don't think about this enough. I wish I thought about it more, but if one of us were to die, God forbid, leaving here tonight, the first thing we would see... Welcome to Riverside. Hey, brother. <laughs> right beside a fire station. Yeah. Hey, we live near it, man. We're good. It's like being, it's like being on church on Sundays. Okay. Um, That's right. The first thing we'd see in the intermediary state between our life now and our final resurrection state when the Lord returns is a Jewish man's body, mm-hmm. which does not look like mine. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you read in Revelation 1-6, Revelation 7-9, the enshrinement by God in the pinnacle of his revealed word of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Yes. And we, in again, going back to the, the historical problem here, Gnosticism is a, a term I think probably a lot of us are familiar with, mm-hmm. but if not, it, it was a, a disparate movement that, that, was, that arose in the early church, probably first and second and third. John are written about this. And at root, one of their core principles was, and there was wide variation, but 
a dis uh, a disparagement of the body. Right, the body is bad. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. that's a very Greek mentality, mm-hmm. a bastardized version of Plato. Yep. And you know, one of the things that the scriptures adamantly stand against is this downplaying of the goodness mm-hmm. of the body. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In all of its multifarious dimensions. So that the reason that Felicia and Wayne and Jay Will look different from me and James and Josh is by the design of the Creator yep. yes. that says this does not end when racism does. Racism mm-hmm. will have an end. Yeah. Yep. Right. Race in the sense that we're defining today, which I actually would challenge even the definition. Yes, of yes race. I agree. I would too. I would but in the sense, the popular sense of the term, right. racism will die at the resurrection. Race will not die at the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that to me is stunning to meditate on. Yeah. That there's going to come a day where we're all together and celebrating difference. Yeah. And that needs to be brought into the present, I think. Yeah, and I think part of the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, it's, I know it's provocative in a lot of circles to even use that phrase because you hear the Black Lives, well, all lives matter. Uh, you know, like, okay, well, we're, we're going to get there. I know, like, that's not helpful. Uh, but the reality is when you, when you, again, look at history, and that's why history is so important here, you understand why that's such a, an important and, and, and freighted in a good way statement to make. It's yeah. to say black lives don't just matter, but black bodies are beautiful. Mm. that they're image bearing that in in a culture that has systematically denied that yes, yes. and has criminalized that yeah. when beauty was a white barbie doll yeah right. you know like all of those realities that we don't <laughs> yeah. think about um, because being a majority race you don't your your blind spots well you don't you never see them mm-hmm. uh, or you r- rarely do and so i think when you understand and hear and talk and that's why these conversations are so important it, it just sheds light on that to go, okay, I get it now. I get why we got to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when yeah. I um, spoke at Crew on the gospel and race, um, I used Revelation 7. I said, obviously, yeah. when John looked out, he could see different colors. He could see different clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, race is a, so- a social construct. I get it. But let's deal with the fact that he saw different people. Yes. And there was no superiority mm-hmm. except the one who created the different people. Mm-hmm. I said, if I'm... Racial superiority denies the Trinity. It literally denies the uniqueness of the triune of a triune God. If we feel like our race is superior to another race, we are denying the uniqueness and the beauty of God Himself. Well, and yeah, that's so huge, Jay. Will uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who's the Chancellor of RTS, a few years ago had a statement that has stuck with me. He said, "Racism is a heresy at the level of anthropology." Mm. Wow. And that's a very compact way to express a world of theology. Yes. Yeah. Which is that heresy is denying something, a cardinal doctrine of the faith, which if you hold to will deny you access to heaven. Mm -hmm. That's how serious it is. Yeah. Anthropology, of course, is the doctrine of man, Mm -hmm. who we are as human beings. So I think that statement expresses well putting all this together saying when, when we deny or um, in any way downplay or subjugate someone on the basis of the color of their skin mm-hmm. we've become a heretic mm. as yeah. fully excluded from the kingdom of God as someone 
who says that Jesus is not the Son of God and fully God and fully man. Mm. That 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 struck me. Wow. Yeah. That, this is really great. I mean, this is getting really good. You guys are <laughs> saying some really good stuff here, but we got a lot, a lot yeah. of meat here. So I'm going to kind of just push us along um, just a little bit. And uh, you guys are kind of already there. James just mentioned, um, you know, the statement that people often um, make when we say Black Lives Matter. Some responses are all lives matter. All lives matter. And so we really want to look at how the church should respond, um, some of the ineffective ways, the ineffective responses, and some of the uh, effective responses. And I, I kind of want you to hit on this one a little bit, Jay, um, being that you're, you know, in a church plant, um, new pastor. Hey. My pastor, you're doing okay. Hey. Uh, <laughs> but uh, kind of <laughs> want you to to really, I want us each one of us to really look at how the body of Christ, how we should respond. And I know it, it could can be difficult because again, not of all, all of us are the same race. Yeah. Um, and I want you, Gabe and James, to really think about how you would respond um, to someone in, in the church or just a friend, you know, someone of um, a black person that mm-hmm. came to you and said, this is what I'm, I'm really experiencing. I'm experiencing, you know, racism. I'm being discriminated against. How would you, you minister to them and how to deal with that? Do you feel like you're equipped to even do that as a white male? Um, um, I, I but say, I want, Jay, if you can just kind of yeah, get you. into that for um, me a little. I would say for those who yell, all lives matter, back to those who say black lives matter, um, that's as ignorant as somebody who... You know, we, we celebrate uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. If on Breast Cancer Awareness, somebody said, well, all people get sick. I've had the flu before. Yeah. You see how how ignorant that sounds and yeah. almost how denying, especially for somebody who has died because they've had breast cancer or people who have been, uh, uh, who have suffered due to breast cancer, um, to downplay their experience and say, well, you know, everybody gets sick. I've had the flu before. Yeah. We're not saying we don't want to do away with all sickness. You know, one day all sickness will be done away with, like sure. Gabe said. Um, but to say all lives matter when black lives matter is brought up, it's downplaying black people's experience. It's, uh, nobody's saying black lives matter says nobody else's life matters except mine. Right. No, they say, of course all lives matter. Sure. But at this present moment, we're not acting like all my lives matter. So we want to highlight the lives that don't seem to be acting, we, we, we're acting like their lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just like saying all fetuses' lives matter. Right. Obviously. We want to see babies born. We want to see... So, but if, if we start saying, well, some fetus lives matters, it's an uproar. Yeah. There is a, there is chaos all of a sudden, uh, in the evangelical world, um, in the Christian worldview, those who are, are pro-life, uh, would yell out, how dare you say only some fetuses lives matter? Mm-hmm. Why are they not uproar, are saying the same uproar when some people say, how dare you not say it? Black Lives Matter. You know, it's, it, yeah. it's the same thing. It is. So how do I uh, navigate that conversation and try to help uh, some brothers and sisters may see that? Um, I just bring them to the fact that if you're concerned 
that people are saying Black Lives Matter, you feel like you're being excluded? Well, I have a question. Do you feel like Black Lives Matter? And if they and if they really do, at this moment, with so many black people feeling a disparity of injustice, why are you able to not, why are you so quick to not speak on it? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it so easy for you to let that fly by? Yeah. But you claim all lives matter. Yeah. That, yeah. that is, I mean, it's hypocrisy at the end of the day. It is. I, I think, so if, if you really want to take, um, a simple new view of the term black lives matter and what it's actually trying to convey. If you want to, if you want to look at it from this perspective, we're not just trying to say that only black lives matter. We're really trying to say black lives matter too. Yes. That's really what's trying to be communicated through these movements and that kind of thing, because we know for a fact that all lives matter. We're not denying all lives matter. We get it. We understand. It's just, when that response is thrown back at us so quickly, it, it, it really affects us negatively. And it is an ineffective response, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Like, you know, when the issue of black on black crime is brought up, um, that, that's, yeah. an, that's another one, honestly, mm-hmm. that I see as a deflection. It's not that the reality of violence within black communities is not real. We fully know that. <laughs> that's something that we're painfully aware of. But to your analogy, Jay Will, um, that would be the equivalent of somebody at a breast cancer awareness event saying, well, what about lung cancer? Yeah, yeah. They're both cancers. We understand that right now we're dealing with breast cancer. So we're aware of the lung cancer. But let us deal with this breast cancer for now. Mm-hmm. That's a great analogy. And then we'll get back to dealing with, you know, the yeah. lung cancer. We, we understand they're both destructive. Just don't take the opportunity at this point to deflect from what we're trying to address in this moment. Yeah, and I think too, I would say, Wayne, I think that the the insecurity that is betrayed by that kind of response, yeah. it, it does, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I don't know that. Yeah. But it does remind me of when you when you read some of these these Dabney and Thornwell that we, we talked about earlier, the fear of a black planet kind of idea, you know, this mm-hmm. fear of the black man, that yeah. like th- their fear of race contamination. And amal- he, they called it amalgamation yeah. of the races. It's just, you're sort of like, what, what in the world? Like, what does this come from? And like, when some people say black, all lives matter, not just black lives. You're like, I don't think black supremacists is a major threat in America right now. Like, I don't, why are you so fearful of this? What is that? Is this, is this the racial scapegoating yeah. that has traced so much, that has described so much of American history to scapegoat the black man and woman? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, but I do know for me, what I think, I don't know that I would have said all lives matter in response, but I think there's a lot of stupid things I would have said. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really changed me, and I've shared this with Jay Will and with Josh, um, going to an Acts 29 conference, and Tabidi was the main speaker that year. Oh, I love Tabidi. And they and then they had a panel with Dwayne Bond and Eric Mason and some other guys in the network, all um, black brothers, black pastors, and these guys. I mean, Eric Mason's older for our network, you know. (laughs) Dwayne's the old guy. Yeah, yeah. well, actually, isn't Eric a little older than Dwayne? Oh, no, no, okay, okay. Dwayne's older 
Dwayne just looks younger than everybody. Yeah, I know that's true. <laughs> Dwayne's gonna live to be two hundred years old. That guy's so healthy. Y'all are seriously fanboying right now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. But um, but Eric Mason grew up in South Carolina. I didn't know that. But he talked about his uncle. It's in his living memory. His uncle was lynched oh, wow. in this state. Wow. Uh, and then Dwayne Bond talked about his experience being in a moving to a white neighborhood, having rocks thrown through their window with the N word on the rock mm. and spray paint on the driveway. And I'm like, this is in the, this is like the 70s and 80s. This yeah. isn't 50s yeah. and 60s. Right. And then hearing my my good, I mean, I I love Aunt, and, yeah. and hearing Aunt share about his dad's experience of being denied bank loan when. He had every right to get this bank loan. And then mm -hmm. white men who worked for him got loans, but he couldn't get a loan. Um, <laughs> I just, I think hearing those stories was huge. And I think breaking down the walls yeah. that you put up, because I think assumptions of a lot of white evangelicals is like, oh, this is a political issue. Yes. This is Democrat versus Republican. Yes. This is, Left oh, you're more leaning towards a socialistic solution right. to these inequalities, yeah. Marxist, et cetera. That kind right. Of thing. Yeah. And I think when you hear the story, it sort of allows you to, to do what Scripture says we're supposed to do, which is to mourn with those who mourn. And yeah. I think the white church has utterly failed to do that. Yeah. It's and I utterly would, failed to do I, that. I would say even that argument, um, well, what about black-on-black -black crime? White-on-white -white crime is higher than anything else in America. <laughs> Yet we never talk about white-on-white -white crime. Obviously, people who interact with each other a lot, crime is going to happen. So black-on-black -black crime, white-on-white -white crime is a terrible argument towards yeah. racial disparity in america another deflection that i see from from white people a lot is well police brutality is not a, a, just a black problem it's a yes. white problem too. in fact more white people are are brutally you know beaten by police than black people yeah of course you know when you look at per capita of course you know <laughs> yeah. that that's, uh, that's obviously going to be true yeah um and so but i think my my pushback more recently has been then then all the more reason for you to care about this. <laughs> like, right. If if this is a white problem too, then why are you saying, why are you protesting this? Yeah. Like that. Why? That's a that's a dumb question. Like then the, my question is, why aren't you protesting this if yeah. it is a white problem too? But but I I think it is I, I, the issue is a lot of these problems are just disproportionately yeah. a black problem. Yeah. And that's and, and and that's true for a lot of these issues. I mean, I I, I as I found myself pushing back against. Um, brothers and sisters who I love this week um, who who claim that systemic racism doesn't exist. I, I find myself looking at, uh, diving into some of these facts and studies about this. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? You know, is is this really not a systemic issue or is it blow, being blown out of proportion? Mm -hmm. And I found some statistics that were uh, actually were really discouraging. I mean, I found myself even more angry and, yeah. and saddened by what I found, one of them was that, you know, for, for like if you wash out all the differences in, a, in the demographics, and one way to do that is you take first time felons, mm -hmm. first time felons. Now, now the doesn't matter, you know, what, how many are black and how many are white, but you're just taking the percentage of first time, you know. So now we're just dealing with criminals mm -hmm. that black men on average get 270 more days in their sentence as first time felons on average than white men. Yep. And it's even worse if you're darker skinned. Yeah. It's 400 days more. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, now Now we're washing out the, because now you can't say, well, black black men commit more crimes. Now we're talking just about felons here. Yeah. We're talking just about felons. Mm -hmm. So we're washing out all the differences and saying there's a problem. There's yeah. a, there's actual systemic problems and, it, and it's not just, um, it's not just perception. 
Yeah. It's not um, just emotional trauma right. from your past that's you know causing anger. There's actual still issues in our systems today, yeah. and that that need to be dealt with and need to be owned. Yeah, we have to talk about it. And we have to be honest about them when they exist. Yeah, yeah. And all, oh. I'm sorry. I just see this um, comment just like just brewing on Gabe. I just see yeah. it. Come like, on, Professor. Come on, Professor. Please. Gabe is always bubbling up with brilliance. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just listening, taking it all in, Felicia. I. I, 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 I do want you to answer Felicia's question, but I have a question for Felicia, actually, yeah. because Fee's got a lot, too, and she's kind of spending all of her energy directing us. Um, <laughs> but Fee, I want to ask you this question. This is a question I, get, I have been asked by okay. white friends who go, to your point, this happens to white people, too. You don't see us panicking. You know, and you guys heard about Tony Tempa in Dallas, yeah. white guy yeah, 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 yeah. who was yeah. brutally murdered by police. Absolutely. He was mm-hmm. being suffocated and they were mocking him as he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the, the response is you don't see white people rioting, so what's the difference? And 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 I talked a lot with Ant about this. Mm-hmm. So I've but I'd love Fee to hear your perspective as to why is it different for the, for the African American community than it is for the white community. When that you see that on TV screen, you hear, you hear the cops mocking him. You hear him begging for his life. Like, why is it a different response? Um, I believe it's a, a different response. It goes back to um, the racial trauma, and there's a thing, yeah. um, historical trauma, obviously, goes back um, to that. Um, I have an uncle um, that helped to to raise me and my siblings, helped my mom after my dad passed to to raise me and my siblings. And he often um, talked about some of his experience with um, with racism as a black man. Um, And one of the things that he (laughs) told me and and my sisters um, as we were growing up and as we would date, he would tell us, "If, if you bring somebody home, you better not ever bring home a white man. Like he yeah. was seriously adamant about that. And I felt mm-hmm. in my heart that his comment was wrong at the time. But um, listening to some of the things that he's experienced, um, grandparents hearing their stories, um, of course, um, seeing history itself, you yeah. know, um, seeing Harriet Tubman. I remember as a kid, my first African-American um, history paper was on Sojourner Truth. And I, I, I fell in love with Sojourner Truth at that time. Yeah. Just, it, it resonates because I am, I am black. Yes. So when I see it, I'm going to feel it. It's going to be a different emotion right. um, yeah. for me because I am a black woman versus when a white female a white male is looking at it um so it goes back um to that generational and that historical yes. trauma it's just it's it's real we see it again we have black children and so when we look at a black male uh, a kid we look at um Brianna Taylor we look at Trayvon Martin we look mm. at all of these people so many I can't even so just think of all the names right them. now yeah. but when we see that you know, we're automatically thinking in my mind, this could be me. Um, mm. I, I'm a runner. I like to run in the mornings. Mm. And um, sometimes I, I, I'll run with my boss or I'll run with someone. But a lot of times I, I like to run by myself. And I typically run um, down uh, when, I'm, when I work. I work off of Bluff Road. And I'll run down Bluff Road, Columbia, and I'll hit Rosewood. And down, if you make a left one, Rosewood, instead of making a right, 
towards the fairground, if you make that left, there's an area where it's just a bunch of trucking. It's a, I know Vulcan Rock Company is down there and a bunch of different uh, trucking companies. A lot of big trucks come through there. Mm-hmm. And I had a guy that said to me um, the other week, um, he works in the same organization I work in, and he made a statement, you need to be careful running down there, mm-hmm. you know, with everything that's going on. And I was just kind of like, and so this morning, I, I changed my route. Wow. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what you know, if? I see all the protests. Yeah. I see I'm experiencing that vicarious trauma. Like I, I'm watching yeah. the riots. I'm watching it on TV, which is why I mentioned in the beginning that I've been trying to phase out a lot of that because it's it's hitting me. It's it's coming at me. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's that's why it's different yes. because of the again, the historical trauma and that that transgenerational we, we know we've had you know, family members that have experienced yes. it. We've experienced it ourselves. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I find myself when I'm in, in meetings, I'll be in a room with all white males. And mm. I'm sitting, some some people will acknowledge me and some, some people won't. You know, it, it just mm. depends. So I, I think that's why. Yeah, that's, I think that's a super helpful. I, yeah. And vicarious trauma, I like that. Yeah. I think that's something... A lot of white people naturally just don't get. So that's super helpful. So. I, I, well, the thing is, I think. Um, well, no, I'll go ahead. Go ahead. So, I think that's really the key difference is you know the additional burden of that trauma. And yeah. look, I, I mourn the loss of that young man. Like that's an injustice. It really yeah. is, and it, it's despicable the act. It's just as a society. You know, African-Americans, we have that added history of time and time and time again, you know, that happening to us and justice not being done. And, you know, in some instances, the system actually favoring, you know, (laughs) the destruction of, you know, black bodies and that kind of thing. It's just an added burden. And I mean, it's, it's not that we're looking to play the part of the victim. Like, you know, we're, we're tired of being the victim. Really, I mean, honestly, that's, we we don't want to play the part of the victim. We're not looking for special treatment. We're not looking for any kind of you know unwarranted attention. We we, we don't want that. We don't even want pity. Honestly, it, it's just it's just we're tired. I mean, that, that's just the reality of it. And that, that there's an extra burden also on on black Christians as well. Um, I'll say this as a young Christian man because James, to your point about you know. Uh, Black supremacy not being a nationwide concern. <laughs> it, you're right in that sense, but we as black Christians, and y'all know Jay and Fee can speak on this, we have that added pressure of, you know, trying to fight the good fight and also at the same time trying to avoid the temptation to buy into a lot of black brothers and sisters who the may brother. not, who yeah. may or may not be Christians. Who are also quick to point out, you know, well, Christianity is the white man's religion. Yeah. Why are you involved in that in the first place? We also have false teachings that we have to contend with. Yeah. Hmm. And we have to really be sympathetic to the plight of the black community. But at the yeah. same time, we have the added pressure of saying, yeah, but Jesus is still Lord. Mm-hmm. And contrary to what you may have heard or what you've been fed or what your anger has really led you to believe, it, he, he's not... <laughs> I know you see a lot of pictures where, you know, he's got, you know, the long blonde or brown brunette hair and, you know, blue eyes. Looking and, like a beach boy. Right. <laughs> you know, he's got but, a British accent. He does. Yeah. He always seems to have, I don't know why Jesus always <laughs> seems to have, 
you know, sound like one of the Beatles, but I don't know. But but no, it's just that added that added pressure of <laughs> I got I Gabe looking a little red over there, but um just that added pressure of really having to walk that fine line between um Christian orthodoxy amongst those in the black community and still even in the midst of that, trying to point them back to Jesus. Because a lot of times they're looking at not just, you know, the, the history of systemic racism or whites against blacks, but they look at historically how the church has been complicit. Yes. And it's like, well, why are you still yes. with the church? You yes. know, so we, there's an added pressure there as well. Yeah. And yes. so Jay had a response. No, and then I was um, say, once two, you do that, we want to kind of move into um, effective responses. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say two things. Um, to point to something Fee said that her uncle said, don't bring a, a, a white man home. Um, it's been a, something that's been said in many black homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, and a lot of people say, well, that sounds racist. Well, the reason why is because the parent is usually afraid of what their parents might do to you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they're saying, hey, don't bring a white girl home or don't bring a white a white boy home. Um, not because they don't trust that boy or that girl. They don't trust the parents of the other person. Exactly. Um, and that's based mm-hmm. on previous trauma. Yeah, right. That's, um, that's yeah. kind of been inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I was going to say is, uh, and as a leader in 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 the evangelical circles or black leader in the evangelical circles uh i have said it many times i walk that fine line and some black churches don't accept me because they feel like i had a coon to exactly. be this side. exactly and some white white church leaders might look at me and say you sure are smart to be black yep and you have to walk that's real that. that's the yeah. tension yeah. <laughs> that is the tension we walk in yeah. um now praise god he has graced us to be in that tension yeah. But it's exhausting at the same time. Oh, yeah. It is. It Can is. We, I, yeah, I would just ahead. say one thing historically that's fascinating to me is all of us here are creedal Christians in the sense that we accept the ancient creeds of the church as we should because insofar as they are accurate summaries of the biblical teaching, which I think they are, mm-hmm. they merit our acceptance and they were gatekeepers for orthodoxy. And a lot of them were written by people from Northern Africa. Yes, they were. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> so <clears throat> Christianity's roots in the ancient Roman Empire spread from the Middle East to Northern Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, long before there were monasteries established in Europe. Yep. Yeah. And the European Orthodoxy, which we would agree with, I think, the classical doctrine of God that was developed in the Middle Ages, has its roots in Northern African Christianity, yeah. which is underplayed and dismissed in most of 20th century evangelical history. Agreed. Yeah, there's, there's a Tom Odin has a Tom book Odin, on Odin, yeah. The African shaping of yes, yes. how Africans shaped the Christian yeah. mind. Yeah, it's yeah. ironic that it's been seen as a white man's religion when yeah, it was man. started by a brown skinned Messiah. Well, and shaped you, by North Africa. You mentioned Reformed <laughs> theology. That the number one guy Calvin's going to cite for you in his Institutes of the Christian Augustine, Religion, yes, is Augustine, who manifestly did not look like our Genevan friend Calvin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Awesome. So we, we talked about some of the, you know, the ineffective responses and we really hit hard on deflecting, but we definitely need to know effective responses and how we can respond effectively as a body of Christ. And I think we're really doing it right now. You know, we're having the conversation. We're having what we call the hard conversation, the complex conversation. It's important for us to really to acknowledge uh, the reality 
of racism and injustice. I think that's really important. And just um, having a genuine concern. I think uh, Josh mentioned, you know, hey, I called, you know, one of my one of my black friends and asked them, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. That's how you can really um, respond in this time if, if you have. And I know it, it could be uncomfortable, you know, for some white people, but it's it's important. You it know is. what I'm saying? It might seem a little quirky yeah. <laughs> um, to you at first, but it, it really, I've had some white friends that have reached out to me and said, hey, Fee, you know, I, I see what's going on. You're acknowledging that there is yeah. a problem, yeah. number one. Yeah. And you're saying, hey, I'm checking up on you. You know, I, I know you can't go out there and be a whole movement by yourself, but the fact that you're willing to say, hey, you know, friend, I see what's going on yeah, yeah. and I'm concerned about you. That That's really important. But this conversation in itself is important. And as we get ready to just kind of conclude this conversation, I want us to just each go around the room and kind of say why we believe that this is important for the church, for the body of Christ to stand up and have this conversation and how you're really going to go about doing that um, just within yourself. Yeah, I, um the, the answer I've been going back to the past few days, um, matter of fact, we did a devotion about it the other night, is um, Ephesians chapter 1, verses um, 8 through 10, mm-hmm. when it talks about we've been washed by the blood, that now for the present time, for this, uh, uh, we are now created as a new family. Um, and I just, I always tell my white brothers, um, respond how you would if you were actually dealing with family. Yeah. You know, mm. you need to look across the line and say, this is either my family member that's being that's suffering or this is a potential family member that's suffering. And how would you respond if your family member is going through something? If they're grieving, how would you respond to your family? If you're, you just lost an auntie or un- uh, uncle, how would you call? Would you call the kids? Would you go see the kids? Would you go, you know, bring a plate over? Come sit down. Like, mm-hmm. how would you respond to a grieving family member? Don't don't respond as oh that's them over there they're dealing with that issue. Yeah, um, yeah. But you should say no. What my brother's hurting, my sister's hurting. How how do you respond to family? And that's just been the response I've been going back to this past week is respond like they're your family member. Mm-hmm. That's good. I uh, I appreciate that question so much, Felicia, because I I serve at a church that wields tremendous influence and power not only in this city but in the state, mm-hmm. and. Thankfully, I can say with a clear conscience um, that the leadership of First Presbyterian Church is listening. Yeah. And one of the things that's beautiful to me about this conversation here is I've never once felt uncomfortable in the wrong way. What you're talking about family resonated me, Jay Will, as I can see us walking out of this room, sitting down to a meal together and not just a conversation about race. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, to me, pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth. So what should we be doing? Um, One of the things here is fellowshipping together, doing this. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, every time I get together with my black friends, I don't want to just talk about race. Yes. I want to know about kids. Right. We're all in this. I mean, marriage at Golgotha, I've been... That's awesome, by the way. <laughs> yes. because Please check us out. <laughs> I dang need to bring my marriage back. It sounds both brutal and beautiful, right? It is. Marriage at Golgotha. And there's two, the the two B's of marriage is br- brutal and beautiful. There you go. There you go. Oh, but, interesting. <laughs> like, I'm just sitting here thinking, apart from what I'm learning here, brothers being arrested, um, getting pulled over at a parking lot in Publix, 
Stuff that's never happened to my brothers, my cousins, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. Apart from learning from that, I think one of the greatest healing things the church can do is not be colorblind, because we can't be, and we're not supposed to be, but to be hospitality full. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, to, to be sitting around and having conversations, but then also, I was talking to a black brother about this today, that there is a, a feeling that this is an atmosphere now of change. Mm-hmm. And that's refreshing. And I want to see that. And I'm anxious to learn how we can best do that as we keep going on. Because I don't, what I don't want this to be that I was dismayed about, y'all, to be honest, on Tuesday, seeing all these blackouts on Twitter and on Instagram, it's like, okay, that's awesome. That mm-hmm. took you 15 seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen a month from now? Right, right. You know, let's, yeah. I, that's where I want to see lasting change in my own life and in the churches around us. And I think we're at a point that the Lord's brought us to. And wouldn't this just be like him to use the death of a guy in a city gutter that, you know, people Mm. didn't think was worth preserving Mm. to bring about lasting change? Wouldn't that be just like the Lord who meets us at Golgotha? Mm. Wow. Man. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The Son of Man crucified outside the city where he could be forgotten and overlooked ends up being the Savior of the world. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll say um, I think I think empathy is is big, and I say that not just on the side of you know my white brothers and sisters. I believe it's I believe that a large portion of it is definitely needed there. Um, you know what what's been big for me, you know, in this last couple of weeks is the amount of empathy that I felt, you know, from a lot of my white brothers and sisters. Um, when James called me um, about a week ago. And so I I have this, I have to be careful, honestly, not to put James on like a pedestal because, you know, to me, me, he's just like, (laughs) I really do. I mean, I I say that honestly. I mean, it's because. You know what what they say about pedestals? They're far enough away to keep you from a real relationship and high enough to light a fire under you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Noted. (laughs) Um, But. You know, the, the James that I heard last week, you know, when he called me, you know, wasn't the, the the brilliant scholar that I'm used to hearing in the pulpit and, you know, breaking down and dissecting scripture and theology and all that kind of stuff, you know, effortlessly, it seems like to me at times. You know, the James that I heard was one that, I mean, surprisingly to me, at times was stumbling over words. Like, you know, he was... Like, Wayne, I, I don't know exactly how to approach this. I, I just want to gain some level of understanding on how you're doing and this, that. And we just had a beautiful conversation. And I mean, I told I told them it really made my day. And I, I meant that. I really did. Because just the acknowledgement that, you know, I, I'm with you. Like, I'm really with you. And I'm not just saying that. And I'm not just going to take 15 seconds to your point to post it. And then go about my business as if, as if nothing happened. Um, just that genuine empathy that I felt. You know, I remember sitting here um, and Landon, you know, sitting over there. I'm pointing at the chair that he was sitting in. Just kind of looked me in my eyes like, you know, hey, brother, I'm with you. And he, he looked me in my eye and said, you know, I'm with you. And I, mm-hmm. I felt in that moment that, you know, he was genuine. And in spite of all the stuff that he's dealing with, um, you know, just genuine empathy, I think, is very important on the part of my white brothers and sisters. But I will say also that, you know, on my end, 
um, it's important that I continue to keep my heart malleable and soft and, you know, continue to allow God's grace to really like guide me as far as like how I respond and, you know, how I go about processing the trauma, processing everything that's going on, processing how I respond to social media, um, et cetera, et cetera. Just really being mindful of my own heart as well, I think is, is key for me and how I move forward and, you know, whatever part I play in the change coming about. So, yeah. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that um, I've been encouraged by conversations I've had with my parents' generation about this mm-hmm. um, issue. And um, I think that one of, I, I've come away with new, uh, in, in, in just in this conversation the last couple of weeks, um, come away with some new like ways that I want to change. And one of them is I, I want to be better about engaging um, my African-American brothers and sisters on this issue because I've been so scared to say the wrong thing yeah. or to ask the wrong question mm-hmm. um, that I even just in the break a minute ago, I, I kind of expressed some of my concerns about Black Lives Matter as an organization. Like that was hard. Like that was a little bit hard for me because mm-hmm. I was afraid like, I mean, is this offensive? Like, it, And so and, and so I'm putting myself out there a little bit more and just trying to engage and learn, but with a posture of, hey, like I want to hear from you on this too like not this isn't just like hey i want to i want to express my view to you but i want to hear back right. push back and right. and because i'm i'm still evolving yeah on this yeah like i'm still changing the spirit's still working yeah. in me mm-hmm. in on these issues and like like gabe you mentioned earlier our blind spots i have blind spots and i think the if i have the posture of I have blind spots. I know I have blind spots i don't know what they are because that's the definition of blind spots. <laughs> um <laughs> If I have that posture, then I'm going to uncover a lot more of them than if I don't have that posture. Right. And so my 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 conversations with my parents this week were a little bit timid because I didn't know how that was going to go, mm-hmm. and it was so encouraging and yeah. so uh, they were they they they're so much further along on this than I expected people of their generation wow. to be. My dad posted one of the best Facebook posts I've seen on this. Mm-hmm. Um, on Facebook this week, he sent it to me to edit before he sent a post of it. Like, and I'm like, you're sending the wrong person, but I'll be glad. To. But um, uh, and and for me, it was I, I, there's been a little bit of an awakening yeah. this week just because these conversations are happening. So I would say that like, what's an effective response? Like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about it with our parents. Let's talk about it with other white people and let's talk about it with each other I want to have these com- like conversations like we're having right mm-hmm. now because they change me and they shape me and they expose things in me and expose blind spots and hard things but also good things and yeah. and, and so these conversations are really helpful so like let's keep talking about it with the posture of uh, of humility yeah. that says I may be wrong Agreed. and I want to know that but and I want the spirit to be able to do that work in me wow yeah. great I just was going to say, um, uh, echoing what Jay Will said, I think this this isn't a, this isn't a, a, at root a Democrat Republican issue, uh, even mm-hmm. a Black White issue per se. This is a church issue, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is the the scriptures are clear that we're to mourn with those who mourn. And I think what I've been convicted of is my relative callousness and indifference toward brothers and sisters throughout history, um, and sort of. Uh, writing that off as a, well, they have this political bent or they have this viewpoint. 
And so I don't necessarily need to listen to their grief. Um, but it, like Jay Will said, if they're family, and in Christ Jesus, as B.B. Warfield said, it's a fundamental law of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are brothers and sisters. So if that's true, I got to listen to my brothers and sisters. I don't, I don't have the luxury to say, sorry, your viewpoint is inconvenient for me, or it's too difficult for me to hear, or I don't want to deal with that right now. Um, I have to listen if I love Jesus. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity, and I'm grateful. I think my prayer is we'll continue to be patient with each other. Yeah. and long-suffering. I'm grateful for, I mentioned earlier, Eric Mason and other uh, brothers in, in the Acts 29 network who have been so gracious and patient <laughs> with evangelicals on the white side of the aisle who have been real slow on this. Yeah. But just being patient and, and, and being eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and not... Right. So. so this has been really awesome. I think we can definitely come back... Um, and continue this conversation because this has really been great. You guys have shared some really great things. I've learned some things here today. This has just been filling. Um, you know, uh, I appreciate you, Josh, for, for asking that hard question. Yeah. That, you know, that's, I think that's really what we just have to get out of this is that it's okay. It's, it's okay to ask those hard questions. It's okay for us to have the hard, hard conversation. And when I think about why it's really important for us to have this conversation is the scripture, um, Matthew 5, um, 13 through 16 came to my mind, um, talking about us being the salt of the earth and being the light of the world. And when we ask ourselves, when, when you guys ask yourself, those that are listening, how do I have those conversations or why should I have those conversations? I'm really not comfortable. Just, just think about what God really has, you know, is requiring us to do so it's important this has been great um again um please uh tune in to we're gonna put this plug in here mary jack go gotha <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna throw this in here right. um, wayne and i have been we've been coming to riverside um i think you, you came like a month or two before i did mm -hmm. um but it's been about a year and some change yeah actually, that we've been coming. i started coming in about march of 2019 mm -hmm. And, and we recently joined and I have to be honest um, and be transparent. We were members of a all black church yeah. forever, for forever, ever. Yeah. <laughs> and um, coming to Riverside, it, it was a little. Um, very white. It, it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it was a little very white. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's. <laughs> Culture um, shock? It, it was a culture shock. Um, of, of course, I had my own personal reasons. I really didn't want to transition into any church because of some personal church hurt. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I had no problem working with white people who have white friends. The idea of coming to a predominantly white church, I was like, ah, yeah. ah yeah. I don't really know. But I tell mm. you... Um, I can just sum my experience up like this. We transitioned to another small group because we're going into the church plant with Jay. But our, our last official night within our um, North Main small yeah, group, yeah. I that was just it was such a phenomenal night, and I I don't think they even realized. Like I just got so emotional when I was <laughs> like, "Oh my God, I don't want to leave! Like I don't want to leave! I love these white people." <laughs> Like, but no, seriously, oh, yeah. like, 
it, they're family. I, I actually yeah, love North. Really North North, they're still my small group. Yeah, we're you still know, family. Yeah. we're still family. Yeah. Um, but the transition was great. It was it was really phenomenal, and I'm not just saying it um, just because I'm, I'm a member here. I'm really trying to be transparent and honest with you guys. But I thought about it um, a couple of weeks ago with everything that was happening. I was like, God, it was such a perfect timing of transition with everything that's going on because had I still been a part of a predominantly African-American church, I think my my perspective probably would have been different. My response to what's going on right now probably would have been different. But um, again, this has really been awesome. I think we're going to probably come back again and and try to finish this up. So I thank you guys just for having us, for having me and Wayne. And just, it's been awesome listening to you guys. Well, see, thank you for directing us, keeping us on track. You you guys are all right. You guys did all right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys for being with us and letting us be a part of this. Thanks so much for listening to Marriage at Golgotha. We really appreciate you guys for listening. Thank you. This is always phenomenal. It's always wonderful. Mm-hmm. Always fun. Yes, always fun. So, babe, tell them where they can check us out. Well, for starters, you can go to our site. Our site is marriageatgolgotha.com. M-A-R-R-I-A-G-E-A-T-G-O-L-G-O-T-H-A dot that's probably the easiest way to listen we have our podcast episodes page set up with a playlist and you can go down the episodes however you want listen in to each episode there we're also set up on itunes for our apple users for our android users we will not hold that against you we are on google podcasts and uh for anybody you can check us out on spotify stitcher radio public there are a few other casting platforms that we're on as well we're on facebook we're on instagram follow us there like our facebook page on instagram our handle is m at g that's m a t g underscore podcast you have a lot of ways to get to us we want to get it out there not because we're looking to be famous but because we we really believe god's giving us something to say and we really just like the conversations that's right so please remember to keep it real keep it live keep christ in your marriage a to the men wealth we just importing goods but a change gonna come is what i tell the youngsters this is a love song i like to call it justice i wish we could really tell you how i feel